before I get into our text here this morning, I want to uh, give a bit of a heads up for next week. Who knew that October 31st is Reformation Day? Good. Okay, some of us did. Uh, So next Sunday is the 30th, the Sunday before Reformation Day. What we want to do is, well, for one Sunday, we'll pause our Matthew series. um, And in the Sunday school hour, which I would encourage all of you to be at, uh, we are going to look at the, the kind of the setting, the things that were happening at the time of the Reformation, the state of the church, how people were thinking, how, how the church was operating, uh, and the context of that. I want to do that in the Sunday school time, and then the morning message is going to be uh, an announcement of the gospel as understood by those of us who are Protestant and evangelical uh, from the Reformation. So I'd encourage you, especially now that we have children's Sunday school going, uh, bring your kids there, and for the younger ones and the adults uh, can be in here, but we want to do a Reformation emphasis next Sunday. For this morning, we are continuing on in Matthew, so we'll turn in uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses on the temptation of Jesus this morning. So please turn to Matthew 4, and once you're there, then please stand for the reading of God's Word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And may God bless the reading of his infallible word. Think for a minute, what is the difference between working for someone's approval and working out of someone's approval? Think about that for a minute. When I was about 13, 14 years old, uh, I spent a lot of time working for my Uncle Steve on his dairy farm, and my grandpa was grain farming at the time, and I spent a lot of time working for them. Uh, And for those of you who knew my grandpa, you knew that I loved him very, very deeply. I did anything I could to please my grandpa. Uh, And he trusted me with the brand new 7800 and 24 feet of cultivator. And he told me, he instructed me how to cultivate and make sure you get close to the end of the field before you turn around because you don't want too many, too big of corners there at the edge of the field because then you've got to do three or four or five outside rounds instead of just two or three outside rounds. So that I had my instructions and I was going to do everything I could to turn that cultivator as tight as possible at the end of field. And if I could do all the outside rounds in one or two passes, Grandpa would be so proud of me. And I was paying so much attention to getting to the edge of the field 
that I failed to remember that Harry Friesen's turkey barns were right at the edge of Grandpa's field. And I swung around, and I was so proud of how tight I had turned, how close to the edge of the field I got. And when I looked back, the corner post and a few sheets of plywood were laying on the cultivator, and they had come along with the ride for me, and there was turkeys coming out of the barn. <laughs> so, needless to say, I didn't earn very much money that day, and I didn't feel very good about myself. And I told my grandpa what had happened, and I went to Mr. Friesen with grandpa, and we paid for it, and, and he told me as long as I felt bad that that was all the payment he needed. <laughs> but I, I still refused money for that day. But the reason I wanted so hard to please my grandpa is because I knew he wasn't a taskmaster. I didn't have to work for his approval. I had his approval. I loved him, and he loved me. And because of that, I wanted to be loyal to the nth degree to please this man. So what drove me wasn't the fear of coming under fire from him, but rather a desire that this feedback loop of love and of pride in each other would keep growing higher and higher and higher. So keep that in mind as we look at the temptation of Jesus. This passage opens, in verse 1 it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so this verse, you'll notice, picks up halfway through a narrative uh, that we looked at last week in chapter 3. And remember, chapter and verse divisions are our idea. We do that so we can find it helpful to find different places of Scripture. But what it can do, the downside of that is, in our mind, if there's chapter and verse divisions, we tend to categorize it, well, here this stops and then this starts. But the, the Bible wasn't written that way. This is one ongoing narrative. So we have to look at what happened just before the then in verse 1 here. And what did happen just before the then? Well, last week we saw that Jesus had been baptized, and then the Father ordained or inaugurated him into the public ministry by giving him the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and by announcing audibly from heaven that this is his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. So it's worth noting here that the Father is willing to publicly commit himself to announcing his pleasure in the Son, and this is done before Jesus goes out on his earthly ministry. He is working out of the Father's approval, not for it. It's established at the outset that the Father loves the Son because he's the Son, not on condition of certain things that he does. And this is the difference between working for approval or from approval. This is the difference between grasping for victory or confidently approaching things out of victory. Or, in our weekly pattern, it's the difference between working for Sabbath rest or working out of Sabbath rest. We rest, and then we work out of that rest. And I want to suggest that that is the model of Jesus' battle with temptation here. So the question often comes up when we look at the temptation of Jesus, and those who are in Sunday school this morning have a thumb on the scale. They have a a head start because we talked about that a bit this morning. Uh, The question that always comes up is, how real is Jesus' temptation? After all, God can't sin, we know that, and Jesus is God, so were these just pretend temptations? Was Jesus actually tempted? If he's God and God can't sin, then these temptations just bounce off of him. They don't really do anything, or so some have suggested. And if it is a woman's prerogative to change her mind periodically, and it is, Then it is the theologian's prerogative to make careful distinctions. And this is a place where we need to make careful distinctions. We know that Jesus has two natures. 
He is fully God and fully man. So, it's true, God cannot sin. So, according to Christ's divine nature, of course, he cannot sin. It's impossible for God to be lured or enticed into sin. So, according to his divine nature, this is completely impossible. But what about according to his humanity? Okay, Jesus was born sinless, unlike us. He, the, the virgin birth means that he was born sinless, so he wasn't a corrupted son of Adam from his birth. But we do know that even unfallen people are capable of sinning. After all, Adam and Eve sinned, and they were not fallen before that sin. So if we consider that Jesus has a human nature, then these temptations are very real. And this is for sure what we just read in Hebrews, and we're going to look at another passage in Hebrews to to undergird this, that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. His human nature was really human. And the question I asked is, after a 40-day fast, do you think your human nature desires bread? Of course it does. You'd be pretty hungry after 40 days about eating. So one way to think of this is, well, how can he be tempted by sin and yet not tempted by sin? How does that work? Another way to think of this that helps me to understand it easier is, remember the prophecy? There's a a prophecy when the guards are about to break Jesus' legs and then they're providentially stopped from doing it. Because the prophecy says, not a bone in his body shall be broken. Okay? So the question is, could Jesus' bones be broken? Yes. They're the same kind of bones you have, and your bones can be broken. Yes, they can be broken. According to the plan of God, to God's providence in this situation, of course they can't be. But it's not because they're unbreakable. Okay? It's because God wrote the story to go one way and not another way. So yes, according to his human nature, these temptations were absolutely real. Jesus absolutely, genuinely was tempted according to his humanity. In verse 2, it says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So having God's approval and his favor doesn't mean uh, that we don't get put to the test. And there's frequently times of testing, what, what some have called the probationary 40. And it's common in Scripture, if you know your Old Testament stories, you know that there's very often a pattern where God will announce His purposes with someone, and then He puts them in a period of waiting or of probation. And that time often is some form of 40. Noah has to wait for three 40s. He has to wait for 120 years. Abraham is given a promise and then is told he has to wait for 400 years, 10 40s. He has to be patient, and he can't take the land. If, if the king of Sodom comes and offers you the land, you can't just take it. You have to get it God's way, and you have to wait 1040s to do it. Moses, from his calling, has to wait 40 years as well. From the time God calls him until the time it's time to go is 40 years. And then Moses fasts for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, which is his probationary time. And the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain are also waiting for 40 days and 40 nights in their period of probation. And if you remember what they did there, did they pass that probation? (laughs) It did not take them long, and they had melted down their jewelry into an idol. Okay, This is what we do when we are on probation apart from the grace of God. So we've already seen in previous passages that Israel is called the Son of God in the Old Testament, and, uh, and Israel serves as a picture or as a type of Christ. And so now Christ, the perfect Israel, goes into the desert for 40 days. He's following this pattern, 40 days, his probationary 40. And we're going to see in the pattern of Jesus' temptations that there are kind of three layers in these temptations. 
The first layer, the first layer is Adam in the garden. The second is Israel in the wilderness. And the third is Christ now at his temptation. And the nature of these temptations uh, follows the same pattern that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden and that the Israelites experienced in the wilderness. So think of it, if you're a visual thinker, think of taking a standard Lego block, say the four by two block, and you just stack three on top of each other. They, they follow the same pattern, yet there's three distinct things there. And so Adam, Israel, and Christ following the same pattern. Adam is the first son of creation. Israel is the typological son. And then Christ is the final or the only begotten son. So these are all sons of God that are going to be tested in their time of probation. The difference is, of course, the first son, Adam, falls. The typological son, Israel, falls. And the final son, Jesus, passes the test. He is our victor. He is our captain. In verse 3 it says, And then the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And so right away as we see two things, depending on how you translate this word, if or since, uh, but there could be a hint of Satan even suggesting, well, maybe, maybe it's not. If, if you're the Son of God. It can be translated since, so I'm not going to be dogmatic on that point, but it's possible that that's the first thin wedge of getting Jesus to doubt the Father's love. But we know for sure that the first temptation has to do with food. And this may rightly cause you to go back and think of Israel complaining about their food situation when they were being provided with bread from heaven, with manna. And of course, the tempter also works with food when tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. And the problem here isn't food or bread. And actually, we're going to see in all three of these temptations, what Satan is offering Jesus in itself is perfectly fine and good. And in fact, in all three temptations, it's things that Jesus is going to take at the appointed time, but not with a shortcut, not with a bribe from the devil. Bread is a good thing. Angelic protection is a good thing. And Christ taking dominion and glory over the kingdoms of the earth is a good thing. So these are all good things. All three are good things. Jesus is going to eat again. He is going to be ministered to by angels. And he is going to take the nations from Satan. But he's going to do these things honestly. He's not taking a shortcut. He's not taking the bait. He's going to do it God's way. And that's, in fact, what, part of what makes these things legitimate temptations is that in themselves, they're good things. You notice Satan isn't tempting Jesus with some kind of ritual child sacrifice, or he's not uh, tempting him with murdering someone. He's tempting him with things that in themselves are perfectly fine and good. The temptation is to take these things prematurely instead of taking hold of them righteously. He's tempting Jesus to cheat rather than to reap and then to sow. He is going to do these things at the right time and by the proper means, but not by negotiating with Satan. So again, the problem here isn't eating bread. The problem is that Jesus is fasting. So it's not yet time to eat bread, certainly not bread from Satan. In the time of their testing, Adam and Eve took from the tree when it was not yet time. We discussed that this morning in Sunday school. It seems probable that there would have been a right time for Adam and Eve to seal their obedience with taking from the tree, but they did it prematurely and they were cast out. At the same time, or 
years later, Israel grumbled and wants to go back to their slavery and their chains and be fed leeks and cucumbers instead of pressing ahead to those things in the promised land. So Adam caves, Israel caves, and Christ stands firm. And the way, he's, the way he fights back is remarkable. So here he is. This is God the Son. This is the, the second person of the Trinity being tempted. And he could rebuke Satan with his own words. He could just utter new words, and he would be perfectly in bounds to do that. He's God, after all. But instead, he fires back with the book of Deuteronomy. Who's done the Bible in a year? Who gets through Genesis and Exodus pretty good, and then Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? <laughs> right? Does that sound like your Bible reading program? That is the case for far too many people. Jesus answers from Deuteronomy. And the passage, if you want to turn there, I'll just read it here, but in Deuteronomy 8.3, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that, you might humble, that He might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. By answering this way, Jesus is demonstrating a very obvious connection between himself and Israel. He is the true and ultimate Israel. God provided national Israel with their needs, but this was to demonstrate a deeper principle still. Yes, physical life is sustained by bread, but spiritual life comes from the Word of God. And so Jesus refuses Satan's encouragement to turn these stones into bread because it is not yet time for this bread. Living by every word of God must come first. He must first finish his, pa- his fast and obey the word of his Father. And in, uh, in the case of how this relates to Adam and Eve, consider that Adam and Eve... Think of the conditions in the garden. Adam and Eve had the companionship of one another. They're in the most perfect natural setting you could imagine, something that none of us have ever experienced. Even if you go to Yellowstone Park, even if you go to Banff or Lake Louise or Yosemite, it's not as perfect as the conditions that Adam and Eve were in. In an unfallen garden, friendly animals all around them, and the serpent comes and his first line of attack is to get them to question God's word. Did God indeed say? That is the, that's the thin edge of the wedge. Did God indeed say? And what is Satan doing there? He is presenting them with a choice of authority. Do they trust God's judgment or their own? Who's in charge here? Whose law will we have? God's law or man's law? Because there's nowhere in between. It will be one or the other. And they fall in the perfect conditions. Now consider this. Jesus goes into solitude in the desert without a companion at his side in the most unfavorable conditions. There's a hot, parched desert, a barren landscape where things don't grow, a total lack of food for 40 days. And then according to Mark's gospel in Mark 1 verse 13, he's not surrounded now by friendly, unfallen animals, but by wild beasts. He's surrounded by scorpions and snakes and carrion birds. So Adam and Eve have everything stacked in their favor, and amazingly, they fall. They chose autonomy, self-rule, over obedience to God in what was actually a very easy test, and they fell. 
Jesus stacks everything against himself, the worst possible conditions he could be in. He makes himself as weak as he possibly could be. He, he faces an impossible test, and amazingly, he passes it. He chooses obedience to his Father over autonomy in a way that is impossible for us to grasp. So in this very first test with the food, Jesus passes where Adam and Israel have both failed us. And Jesus is now on his way to being a covenant keeper, the new head and representative of the people, the new Adam and the new Moses. And if you want to learn a new word here, what Jesus is doing is recapitulating these covenants. A cap is your head, right? A hockey team has a captain. That's the head of the team. If you recap your study notes, you're going over the headings again, okay? Uh, The capital city is the head city. If you decapitate someone, you take off their head. So Jesus is on his way to becoming the new head, the new representative. And if we're left to be represented by Adam or Moses, we know we are all doomed, Jesus' work is to re-perform, to go over once again the terms of these covenants and to fulfill their demands perfectly. He wins all these promises that God promised in these covenants, and he's going to take the blow of all the curses that God threatens in these covenants. In verse 5 and 6, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their heads they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so again, Satan is tempting Christ. And perhaps, seeing how Jesus just used Scripture, Satan changes his tactics. And now he, having his freshly minted degree from Bag of Snakes Seminary, is going to teach Jesus a Bible lesson. He is presenting Jesus with Scripture. This time I will ask you to please turn in your Bible. Turn to Psalm 91. Satan's words come from Psalm 91, 11 and 12. We'll give you a minute to turn there. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So angelic protection is offered here. There's a promise of physical protection, particularly protection against striking one's foot against a stone. And they're at the pinnacle of the temple, which, according to historians, was about 450 feet in the air. That's a big drop. For those of you who like to visualize things, if you drive past a dairy farm and you see those blue silos, those are typically about 80 feet high. So we're talking five of those stacked on top of each other. Throw yourself off of that. It's a tall building. Jumping off the top of a structure that size and having angels to rescue him would have been an amazing sight to behold. It would have captured everyone's attention. But in this battle between the serpent and the seed of the woman, we are reminded that on the way to victory and dominion, The serpent does, in fact, bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Jesus does get bruised as he crushes the serpent's head. And in verse 7, Jesus answers back. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy 6.16 this time to push back. Yes, he could jump. He could make a spectacle of himself. But this would be testing God instead of, or trusting 
testing God instead of trusting God. And so again, this is a battle of rival authorities. The one testing is the one who has the authority over the tested. A teacher gives the students an exam, it's not the other way around. So the one who is doing the testing by nature of the relationship has the authority. So this is a test of authorities. And we might go back. Does anyone remember the story of uh, Joseph wrestling the angel all night? And then it says he prevailed. When I was a kid, I struggled with that. How could Joseph beat, and that angel is almost certainly Jesus. How could he prevail in a wrestling match against Jesus? But prevail doesn't mean win. It doesn't mean he pushed Jesus down on the mat. That's not what prevailing in this test means. If you're a dad and you've had a boy, you probably start wrestling with him at an early age. And you'll put him in all kinds of holds and pin him down and see what he can do. And dad can win at any time he decides to. But there is a way in which if dad is clearly in charge, he's testing that boy. The boy may in fact prevail. It's possible for a four-year-old to prevail over dad. Not because dad's weaker, but because the test has been passed. Good for you. You got out of this hold. You prevailed. And I think that's what happens when Jacob prevails. It doesn't mean he beat Jesus in a wrestling match. It means he passed a test. Like a father who wrestles his son until he's satisfied that the son has prevailed. But the tester does have authority over the tested. And for us to test God is another way to place ourselves in a position of authority over him. And we know at the end of Jacob's testing, God puts his hip out of joint, so he has a limp for the rest of his life, and then he names him Israel. Israel is going to have a limp for the rest of his life. And one reason that we know that Satan is twisting this passage is because he omits something important. Go back if you kept your your thumb in Psalm 91. We'll read all three verses now. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Now there is a connection between the serpent and the seed of the woman that's promised in Genesis 3.15. It's very convenient that the serpent left out the part where his head gets crushed. Isn't that convenient? This is how you know you're cherry-picking Scripture. Okay? This is what he was doing. He was cherry-picking. He left out at a pretty important piece. And we know that the bruising of Jesus' heel and the crushing of the serpent's head happens in the same action. And so in another surprising turn of events, these angels that are promised here do in fact come to minister to Jesus. But not when Satan offers them. They come and minister to Jesus in verse 11 after the testing is over and he has come through triumphant. And it's time for this to happen when God says it's time, not when Satan deceives uh, and entices Jesus to say it's time. And then 8 and 9. It says, And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And now Satan is offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. Several questions here. Are these kingdoms Satan's to give? Another question. How would it be possible for Jesus to be tempted with Satan worship? Seems like an odd temptation. First question, are these Satan's to give? And in one sense, the answer is yes. God gave the world to Adam, and Adam gave it to the serpent. So yes, they are Satan's to give. Satan has dominion. He is the the God of the age, it says. So yes, it is the devil's to give. 
And yet, in another sense, Satan's claim on the world is like the pirate's claim on a stolen ship, or like some warlord's claim on someone else's territory. Ultimately, in the final end, we know with the psalmist, 24.1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Ultimate authority of this earth belongs to God. So Satan has a real claim, but not one with legitimate authority. And for Jesus to take Satan's offer would be to negotiate with a terrorist. And we know there's a policy. If countries that don't want terrorism refuse to negotiate with terrorists. Why? Well, because they win. They'll do it again if this tactic works. Okay? Jesus is not about to enter into a negotiation with, uh, with a tin pot dictator, with a fallen angel, with Satan. He's not going to lower himself to do that. He's not going to negotiate who he is. If he would do that, it would legitimize Satan's claim to authority over Christ by demanding his worship. And it would follow the same pattern that the other two temptations by getting the question of authority upside down. And the next question is, how could Jesus be tempted to worship Satan? And I think the temptation is real because Jesus' mission is indeed global in scope. Towards the end of this gospel, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus gives the Great Commission. And this commission is clearly global in scope. It's about baptizing and discipling the nations and teaching them to observe God's law. Now that Christ has been given all authority in heaven and earth. But that can only be spoken of in the past tense through the cross. Okay? Jesus can't just grasp at it without a cross on the way. It's an illegitimate negotiation. And so the temptation, that this is something that Jesus is on his way to receiving, makes it a temptation. Satan is prematurely, once again, offering Jesus something that will be his, just like the other two temptations. But the path to the proper way to receive this is through the cross. It's only in reference to the cross where Jesus says in John 12, 31, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Had he negotiated with Satan, uh, it wouldn't have cast the devil out. It would have been a crossless negotiation. But because, precisely, the cross is so terrible, so grim, so lonely, and so full of torment, and you know the way Jesus prays in the garden, if there's any way but this, please, please, this is terrible. He's sweating drops of blood is how terrible it is. Does it seem like a shortcut might be a feasible option? And I would say yes. But again, just like Abraham has to wait for a legitimate heir instead of trying to rush things ahead with his wife's servant, just like Israel is instructed to be patient in taking the promised land from the nations bit by bit, so too Christ has to be patient and take his inheritance the proper way. No shortcuts, no speeding God up. And there'd be another big problem with Jesus doing this apart from the cross. If the cross happened, this kingdom would be empty. Who is saved in a crossless kingdom? Nobody. Yes, he may have it, but he's all by himself. He's all by himself. If Jesus had taken it this way, he has to put everybody in hell. No one can be saved this way. He has to do it through the cross, so his kingdom has you and you and you in it. There has to be redemption for him to be satisfied in his kingdom. Doing it Satan's way, he'd have no younger brothers and sisters to share his inheritance with. Without the cross, there is no great exchange that happens there. And every last person is indeed consigned to hell. 
And so again, in all three of these, we may see that doing it the easy way is faster, but doing it the right way is far more rewarding. In verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And now one last time, and this time with extra force, Christ refuses the devil. And this time, he goes to Deuteronomy 6.13, where Moses reminds the people of all that God has done for them, of all that he has given them. And then in light of that, so again, they have God's favor. God has done all this for them. So in light of that, because I love you, Israel, do this. He instructs them not to worship the false gods around them. And they don't listen. The Father has also been kind to Christ. He has given him the Spirit. He has announced his favor and his good pleasure in Jesus. How could Jesus now betray this by disobedience to the Father that has done so much for him? How could he give his loyalty anywhere else but to the Father? And so in light of this father-son relationship now being directly attacked by Satan, it makes sense that Jesus' rebuttal is now especially strong and pointed and final. Verse 11, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so in light of this last strong rebuke, Satan flees, and now in God's timing, these angels that were promised show up, and they come and minister to Jesus on God's schedule. Jesus has passed the test under the worst conditions, weakened by fasting, made vulnerable by being alone, and made desperate by wild and hostile surroundings in the wilderness. Think of how exhausted he must be. Think of the exhaustion. Think of the suffering. And so now it is the appropriate time for these angels to come and minister to him. So what have we seen? Jesus goes out to face Satan with God's seal of approval already on him. Three times, Satan tempts Jesus by questioning and challenging God's authority. And three times, he holds the lure of autonomy over Jesus, enticing him to take the bait. And three times, Christ knows he has to obey where the former heads of the old covenant had failed. Three times, he has to self-consciously press ahead, knowing he must be the one to lay the claim to God's promises and to take the blow of God's threatening. Tim read 1 John 2.16 with us earlier, and it talks about sinful temptation this way. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world. And there's three ways here of describing temptation that do recap the temptation of Adam and Christ. The desires of the flesh. And for Adam, this is the promise that he won't die. That's the promise the serpent gives. Surely you won't die. And for Christ, the promise is that he won't hurt his foot. Talks about the desires of the eyes. Eve said that the fruit looked good to eat. I don't think she was lying. I'm sure it did look good to eat. I'm sure that part was at least true, the desires of the eyes. And Christ is enticed to turn stones into bread during his struggle with hunger. Would bread have looked good after a 40-day fast? You bet it would have. The desires of the eyes. And the pride of life. And for Adam, this is the promise, you shall be like God. If you grasp at self-authority, if you grasp at autonomy, at self-rule, you will be like God. And for Christ, it's, offered, it's Satan's offer to give him the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. 
So what do we do with this in our own lives if we see this pattern of tempting? Because the manner in which we are tempted isn't exactly far off from the way Adam and Israel and Christ experienced it. The offer of autonomy that we can be gods is always in front of us. It's always there. And this is really the root of all sin. Think any sin. Pick, pick your sin. It all boils down to one common theme. Every sin is me saying, I trust Matt Plett more than I trust the King of Heaven. Every sin is that. Okay? Every sin is a battle of authority. We are hating God. We are trying to throw off God when we sin. This is the root of it. And Satan is a liar. So he, when tempting us, overpromises and underdelivers. In one especially disturbing excerpt in his journal, Adolf Hitler writes this, Today I have made a covenant with Satan for all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And it sure looked like it was headed that way for a while, didn't it? And then he shot himself in the head. That's what happens. That's the way Satan delivers on his promises. Overpromises, under delivers. A generation earlier, Hitler's absolute hero, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who Hitler had the courage to follow perfectly, Nietzsche writes this about his end work of his philosophy. God is dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderer of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? Nietzsche killed God with his mind, because Nietzsche became God. And once God was gone, Nietzsche was God, and it cost him his sanity. The man was reduced to madness, sitting in his room, rocking in a chair by his window, looking out, sometimes nakedly flailing on his piano. And his sister, who was his caretaker, charged admission for people to go upstairs and watch this brilliant philosopher rocking at the, at the window. God is dead. I killed him. God is dead. I killed him. I am God. I am God. She charged admission to watch this. That is how Satan delivers on his promises to be autonomous, to be our own gods. He's a liar. We lose our minds when we lose God. Autonomy always ends in madness. I think it was Chesterton who pointed out, if you want to see people who are living autonomously, go to the insane asylum. Those people are living autonomously. There's no breaks. There's no government on them at all. They're just doing their own thing. So the question of authority is the root of all sin. And we can be enticed from there into different things. We can be uh, enticed by things that gratify our eyes, by things that gratify the lust of our flesh, or by our desire for power. And some of these things are just outrightly sinful and wrong, and they have no legitimate place whatsoever, and so we just simply refuse them. But other times, the sinning isn't in the thing itself, and I'm sure you've had temptations like this too. The thing itself isn't the problem. Reaching for it, grasping for it, perhaps prematurely or using the wrong way, is the sin. And so some practical ways this might be obvious. Think about young couples when they're dating. Dating is good. And you need to fight the battle for sexual purity while you are dating. Not because sex is dirty, but because it's not yet time. Okay? The problem isn't the thing. 
The problem is you taking it before God's appointed times and outside of His appointed means. This might show up in our finances. How many people start out in their 20s wanting to start where their grandparents finished up in their 80s? Right? Grandpa, grandpa bought a new truck every five years. I'm 22. I should have a new truck every five years. It doesn't work that way. Okay? And the problem isn't the truck. It might be a nice truck. The problem is our impatience, our grasping at things, our lack of self-discipline. On a corporate scale, a large part of the reason that we enjoy the peaceful and prosperous society that we have enjoyed for so long is because of older generations who understood this principle. They built. They made sacrifices and built for their children. And what do we do? We're born into this situation, and we're mortgaging our children's future so we can enjoy it even more now. Right? Debt living. And that happens on the personal household scale. That also happens at the national level. We are saddling our grandchildren with debt that they will never pay so we can live easier today. It's sinful. It's sinful whether it's a federal finance minister doing it, and it's sinful whether we're doing that in our own homes. And again, the problem isn't the stuff. It's how we're getting it. Are we disciplined, or are we giving up the future for short-term gain? For those of us who are older, temptation might come in the form of envy or frustration or disappointment. You know, I'm 65 years old and life didn't quite go the way I thought it would. And my friends, his life went the way I thought it would. It's frustration. It's a lack of satisfaction in the life that God has given you. Much of the Christian life involves knowing where we are at in the story. When it's time to lay hold of something and when it's time to wait and be content. But we must always be asking ourselves this. Do I want a faster outcome Or do I want a fuller outcome? What do I want? And we may be tempted to test God instead of trusting Him. And we see this all around us too. Uh, Much emphasis in the Christian church about personal experience or signs and wonders still hasn't gone away. There's a perennial seduction to believe that God will be good if He does this miracle. If I have an ecstatic experience by the campfire. If he answers my prayers a certain way, then I will know God is good. But who's in charge of defining good? Me. I control what's good. And if God does it my way, then he is good. That's backwards. We may be tempted to grasp at power or influence and popularity the wrong way, like Satan enticed Jesus. And think, how many churches, how many speakers have filled large auditoriums by peddling a man-centered gospel that doesn't talk about sin, it instead talks about brokenness? How many megachurch pastors can you see just going, guys, I'm just so broken, right? I'm just so vulnerable in front of you guys. It's just broken. And, and it's like we're not sinners, but we're just broken. We're victims instead of sinners. You can fill arenas up that way. They offer self-help therapy instead of an external savior who comes from outside of us and rescues us. Conversely, how many churches or how many Christian speakers or leaders have tried to win the world's favor? On the one hand, maybe by going woke or being vague about the Bible's message, or on the other hand, by using Christ as a tool for political advancement. We're all individual people, so we're all going to be tempted in our own way. And our fight against temptation is not a futile one, however. Your older brother paved the way for you, and you possess the same Holy Spirit that he does. We are not on our own as we fight, we are empowered But we have to lean into the Spirit in these struggles, in these moments of testing. And just like Jesus fought back with the Word, Jesus obeyed Moses where the Israelites did not, we likewise need to find obedience 
Know the word so you can obey the word, so you can fight back using the word. This is the one offensive weapon in the, uh, in the, the armor of the spirit, right? The, the one sword we have is the word of God. This is how we fight back, with the word of God. But you can't fight back if you don't possess that weapon. We can't fight back unless we've internalized scripture. So know scripture. Read your Bibles. This is how we fight. And we need to pray for the Spirit to give us a sense of boldness to fight back the way Jesus did. And then we also need to remember, when we fight temptation, that we are not fighting for God's approval, we are fighting from it. God is not a cruel taskmaster waiting to berate His children when they stumble. Rather, He is a Father who has been so kind, He has been so gentle with us that we fight sin not out of a sense of winning His favor, but out of gratitude for what He has already done. Already He has adopted you into His family. Now fight because of that. You bear His family name. You're a Christian. Fight because you're a Christian. This is a winning battle. Ask yourself, if He has done all this for me, how can I now turn my back on Him? And let's close in prayer. Father God, You are kind. Lord, I want to thank You that if we belong to You, if we have come to You through the gospel of Your Son, we are already approved. We are already in Your family. You have adopted us, Lord, and You have promised us Your eternal inheritance to enjoy together with Your Son forever. Lord, I pray that each person here would know the sweetness of knowing that they already have Your favor, that their sins are already forgiven, that You have already declared them righteous. And then, Lord, as we go and fight temptation in our own day-to-day lives, in our own experiences, with whatever struggle each one of us faces or where we're particularly vulnerable or weak, Lord, I pray that we would lean into your spirit, that we would lean into your word so that we have the tools to fight back. Not because we're desperately trying to win your approval, but because we already have it and we cannot turn our back on a God who has done so much for us even to the point of sending your son, our older brother, to do this for us, to show us how this is done. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his perseverance. Thank you that he fought back temptation and that he won us the inheritance that we enjoy. Lord, empower us now as we go through this week, filled with temptation, filled with sin, that we would fight back out of gratitude. And thank you for all your kind promises to us. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. So I'll leave you with this charge. Temptation with sin is part of life in a fallen creation. Temptation starts with a lie about who we can trust and who is in authority. And it appeals to the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life. We must fight the same way our older brother did, in the power of the same spirit and in the confidence in the same word. Our desire to grasp at sinful things or to grasp at good things in the wrong way or at the wrong time, has to be pushed out as we rest in something more sure and more rewarding, the promises of God. By His obedience, Jesus has secured all of God's promises for us. By His suffering, He has taken the full blow of all of God's curses on us. If you are in Christ, you are already approved by God, and you can draw on all the strength you need to conquer your temptation. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Hebrews 2, Verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, if he had to be made like his brother in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And go in power, go in approval. Amen.